0: I want to speak to you for a short time on the topic, beauty for ashes, or how God recalculates your life and your root, your root when you turn to him. Isaiah 61 and 3, reading from the New Living Translation, to all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like the great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. For his own glory. Hear it again. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning. We all have made wrong choices in life and we look over our life and we see that and we realize that we did things we knew weren't the best. And it's one thing when other people do us wrong or we had a bad break in life and we know it's not our fault. In those instances, the majority of us have faith that God's going to restore, that God's going to redeem, that God's going to be faithful and pay us back. However, when we bring the trouble on ourselves and when we blow it and when we're the cause of the darkness well, then it's easy to live in regrets, thinking God is not going to help me because I made the mess. But here's the amazing truth about God's grace. You see, God knows human nature. He formed you wonderfully in your mother's womb. And he knows all your human imperfections. You need to understand that before you gave your life to God, he knew you better than you know yourself. He knows all the intricate details about you. He knows all the things that make you uniquely you. He selected your eye color. He selected your hair color. He selected your lack of hair, or he (laughs) selected all the things about you, and there's nothing that you can hide from him. He knows it already, and he knew we would get off course because he knows human nature. And at times, he knew we would give in to temptation. But God has not based his plan for your life upon your ability to make perfect decisions. Hear it again. God has not based his plan in your life based upon your ability to make perfect decisions. No, God has a plan for even your mistakes. He has a plan for our sins. He has a plan for your failures. What you think is a failure, you blew it, and you think nothing can ever good come out of it. God has a way of bringing beauty for your ashes. He can take what should have left you lonely and disappointed, what should have limited your career, what should have crippled your marriage, Instead of setting you back, God knows how to turn it around and pick you up. He knows how to dust you off and clean you up and move you into a greater and newer and even a more potent destiny, should we say. I want to encourage you because God is full of mercy and God is full of grace. And I came to tell someone here tonight that there are new beginnings in God. By an upraised hand, how me know what it is to have a new beginning with God. A brand new start. The book of Lamentations, the third chapter and the 23rd verse says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. The word consumed literally means we are not destroyed. Because of the love of God, we are not destroyed. For his compassion or his mercies never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Have you ever stopped to think, why are God's mercies new every morning? It's because you used up all the mercy yesterday. And you need new mercy today. How many say amen to that? They are new every morning. And the wonderful thing about God is he doesn't turn his back on you the moment you fail and say, well, you should have known better. When Jesus was carrying the cross down the cobblestone streets of Jerusalem and he's carrying that heavy beam of wood and he crumbles under the weight of the wood and he can't go any further. God the Father didn't stand up in heaven and open up the balconies of glory and say, come on, Jesus, you can do better than that. He didn't say, I can't believe you can't carry that load. No, that's not what he did. It's just the opposite. He sent a man to help him, and he lifted it off of his shoulders. The same for you and I. The moment we turn to him, he comes running to us. Does anybody know what it is to have God the Father come running to you? The moment you turn to him, he not only grants forgiveness, he will step in and help you clean up the mess you made if you will lean on him. And he'll even take it a step further and being beauty out of your ashes, the ashes of your life when you bring it to him. First of all, it's important to understand the significance of ashes in biblical culture. Let me teach you a little bit like a Bible college teacher would and then come back and preach to you a little bit. In biblical times, it was customary for people to sit in ashes to cover themselves with ashes to express mourning or loss, such as a grief over a distressing situation. And you read that in 2 Samuel 13 and 19. Or they would cover themselves with ashes if they were grieving over a national disaster in Esther 4.1. Or they would cover themselves in ashes if they're grieving Over an association with repentance for their own sin. If they were broken over their own sin, an outward expression of their brokenness, they would cover themselves in ashes. And you read that in Jonah chapter 3, verse 5 through 7. So ashes were therefore associated with pain and loss and suffering, which is the key to understanding this verse in Isaiah. And to more fully understand the meaning of this phrase, beauty for ashes we must also consider the context on which it is given in Isaiah 61. See, the entire chapter of Isaiah 61 is a prophecy telling the nation of Israel that God still has a plan for their life. How many have ever heard the phrase, God has a plan for you, and it's <laughs> Come on now. God has a plan for you, and it's big. And, it's big. and in Isaiah 61... God was recalculating Israel, and he's reminding them that God had a plan for them, and it's a big plan. And not only does he have a plan, but he's going to recalculate their future by telling them the arrival of the Messiah and how the Messiah's arrival was destined to impact their world. You see, in Isaiah 61, because of their disobedience and their poor choices, God allowed them to go into captivity, and the people or the children of Israel were now being oppressed by the Babylonians. The Persian Empire had risen up, and they had come and taken them. And it wasn't because that they were, for any other reason, God allowed them to go in because Israel's poor choices and their disobedience to God. And there was a great fear in Israel that because of their choices and behavior, God had left them for good. That's exactly how they're feeling. They're in captivity. They're in bondage. And so there was a great fear. Well, God has left us for good. We're stuck here. Does anybody know what it is to feel all alone? Am I the only one that has ever felt all alone? Is there anyone here that Has ever felt completely alone to the point that you cried out, God, where are you? Are you there, Lord? In the stillness of the night, as you lay in your bed and you feel that there is no one there, and you're saying, Lord, are you even there? Do you even see what I'm dealing with, what I'm going through? Well, this is what's happening in Isaiah 61. And God used Isaiah to remind his people that it was their sin against a holy God that had forced his hand into allowing their pain and suffering. However, on the other hand, he says through Isaiah, God is also a God that he's not just a disciplinarian, but he's a merciful, loving God as well. His anger doesn't last forever. And he had a future blessing planned for them. He had a plan for their life, and it was big. It was big. And the words of comfort we find in Isaiah 61 gave them hope in the midst of their dire circumstance. Turn to Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. Remember, Isaiah is speaking these words from God as a conduit to people who are hurting, people who are in bondage, people who are lost, people who are feeling, is there anyone that knows my pain?" So Isaiah turns to them and says, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Oh, they're in bondage, they're in slavery. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That means when slaves go free. In other words, he's saying, there's coming a time when God is going to set you free. I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Don't you know they're, they're hurting, they're in bondage, and they're in mourning. And provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Go back just a couple of verses. They will be called oaks of righteousness, and he said they will put on a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. That spirit of despair, the Bible never mentions depression. But it says put on a garment of praise for a spirit of despair or a spirit of depression. How do I deal with depression? You put on a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. The moment that that depression and that oppression begins to come, you say, no, 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 no. I'm a child of the Almighty God. And you lift up your hands and you begin to worship in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the circumstance. What's also amazing about Isaiah 61 is that it is the exact verse Jesus himself quotes when he comes out of the wilderness after being tempted or tested by the devil. And he was essentially telling them, Jesus was saying, you have to recalculate your thinking. You see, Isaiah was telling them, you're in bondage now, but God is sending me to recalculate your thinking. Jesus comes, he quotes the same thing, and he says, you must recalculate your thinking. I am the Messiah. And in essence, Jesus was saying, God gave those words to Isaiah for the nation of Israel in captivity. However... I am saying those same words not only just to Israel, but to every tribe, every kindred, every race, every color, every single person that is in the bondage of sin. I have come and I will set them free at Mount Calvary. And he's basically saying three days later, I will conquer the death and hell in the grave and I will be the lion of the tribe of Judah. You must recalculate your thinking. For every man and every woman, every boy and girl. And today we can still look to these verses for encouragement and hope when facing difficult circumstances. You yourself, the very moment you are saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. And you can say, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Is on me. Paul said in Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that for those who, got, who, who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things simply means everything. Even our mistakes. Even our mistakes. Even when your life is being affected by other people's wrong choices. See, there will be times in your life that other people's choices will affect you. You have no control over them, but the effect of their choices affects you. And The Bible says all things simply means everything. The times when we blew it and got off course. God knows how to work it for our good. Listen, you may be in a complicated situation with a problem that seems like it will never work out. There could possibly be people involved in that situation, difficult personalities, maybe even legal circumstances, small children or marriage problems and difficulties, and everything seems so complex, but God has it all figured out. He can see things that you can't see. He has ways that are better than your ways. You may even have brought the trouble on yourself. But God is saying, when you turn to me, when you repent, when you confess and own up to your mistakes, when you turn over every circumstance, that's when I can step in and correct those complications That's when I can resolve those complex issues. I'm going to make things work out that you could have never made work out on your own. Oh, there still may be consequences to your choices and actions. Hear that. There still may be consequences to your choices and your actions. But in the end, I can turn it to the good. This is what he did for Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 18, God gave them a promise that they were going to have a baby. However, many years passed, and nothing happened. So Sarah got ahead of God. She got tired of waiting. And she decided she was going to help God out. So Sarah goes to Abraham, and she tells him, Now, babe, maybe God didn't really mean from me, maybe he meant my household. So what I want you to do is I want you to go and sleep with my handmaiden, Hagar. And Abraham, being the godly man that he is, the loving husband, he said, well, you know, if that's really what you want, I mean, I'm just trying to make you happy. And he goes in and he has this affair with Hagar, trying to convince everyone else Well, it was my wife's idea. Yeah, right. And everyone was so excited, thanking God for the promise because Hagar gets pregnant. And they're all excited. Praise God. It's the fulfillment of the promise. But Ishmael was not the promised child. You see, the union of Abraham and Hagar was not blessed by God. It was a situation manipulated by man. No disrespect to Ishmael, but the union that brought him into this world was a result of man's manipulation and sin. He was born out of Abraham and Sarah's impatience and disobedience. I could preach a whole series of messages on the complications you make in your life because of your disobedience and your impatience. The complications I make in my life. They got in a hurry. They took matters into their own hands. Brought a huge problem upon themselves. And they had this baby. Now please understand. Everybody was happy and wonderful. And it is just, they're just celebrating until God fulfills his promise. Because in God's time, God always keeps his promise. And he does not need our help to fulfill his plan. He simply needs our obedience. See, there are some of you trying to get ahead of God. And he's telling you just... Wait for the fullness of time. I'm I'm working things out behind the scenes. You don't see it. You don't understand it, but I'm working things out. You just keep walking with me and be faithful. Don't get ahead. Don't run too far. Just be faithful in God's perfect timing. Sarah finally gets pregnant with God's promised child, and they name him Isaac. Here is where everything gets really complicated because now there is strife and division in the home. And Sarah was upset at Abraham because Ishmael, the young teenager, was teasing his half-brother Isaac. They're celebrating the promised child, and the 13-year-old son, the older son, Ishmael, is teasing him, and it's a burr under her saddle. She's thinking, this boy is tap dancing on my last nerve. Have you ever met someone in your family that knew exactly how to tap dance on your last nerve? I wish I came up with that saying, but there was a, I was in the restaurant one day, and there was a couple, they were having a fight, and she was a little tiny little black lady about this big, and her husband was probably 6'3", six, 6'4", six, and they're just fighting back. I wasn't listening. I really wasn't. <laughs> and they're going at it. Finally, she's this tiny little thing. She goes, oh, no, you just tap dancing on my last nerve. You better just hush it right now. And this big old guy just, (laughs) it was over. And basically, that's what happened with Sarah. She said, you know, you're tap dancing on my last nerve, Abraham. You better get rid of him. Every time she saw Hagar and every time she saw Ishmael, it was a burr under her saddle. Why, Pastor? Because it was a reminder of her own impatience. It was a reminder that she got ahead of God. And every time she saw that child, and to make it worse, Abraham loved Ishmael. And she begins to regret her decisions. (laughs) And don't you know the enemy loved to bring it up to her? Finally, Sarah tells Abraham, I want that woman and that boy out of my tent. Get them out. I don't care what you got to do, but get them out. Now Abraham is torn. He is in a complicated situation because he loves his son Ishmael, but he also loves his wife Sarah and Isaac. Abraham has two women mad at him. Dear Lord. And he's trying to please both of them. Talk about needing divine intervention. He's trying to please Both of them. And he's at a crossroads. So he sends his son away out into the desert. And to all who are involved, it looked like the end of Ishmael. Certain death was waiting for Ishmael in the desert. Remember, Ishmael's probably 14, 15 years old at the time when he goes out with his mother, Hagar. And there's certain death waiting. Everyone's expecting they're going to get word as the buzzards are circling that Ishmael and Hagar have died. He's conflicted. He's thinking, I love Ishmael, but I also love Sarah, and I love love my other son. How did I get myself in this situation? Have you ever walked through your house and said, how did I get myself into this situation? Anybody? Y'all are a bunch of liars in church right now. And God could have said, Abraham, you should have listened to me. You should have waited. If you did listen, you wouldn't be in this mess. It's your own fault, Abraham. But that's not what God said. Instead, God said, in effect, recalculating beauty for ashes. He said, Abraham, in effect, he said, Abraham, You've really complicated things. And because of your choices, now there's division and strife and dysfunction. Now there'll be eternal consequences because of the situation, and your choices will affect more than you and Sarah. Did you know the whole Middle Eastern crisis right now is because Sarah got ahead of God? And the Bible says that God told Abraham, I'm going to bring out a great nation out of your son Ishmael. I'm going to multiply his descendants and make him extremely fruitful. Even though Ishmael was born out of disobedience and what the Bible calls the works of the flesh, trying to make things happen on her own, God, out of his mercy and grace, he took the ashes of a broken relationship and he brought out beauty. And Abraham, I'm going to bring something significant out of Ishmael in spite of your failures, in spite of your sin, in spite of the things you did. When you run back to me, I'm going to step in. And the Bible says that the angel of the Lord or the theophany, the Christophany, the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus himself in a pre-incarnate form visits Hagar and Ishmael out in the desert. And he says something amazing. I want every single mother to listen to me. If you're a single mom, don't you dare miss what I'm about to tell you. The Lord turns to her and says, I will be your husband. You don't have a husband, but I will be your husband. And I will take care of your son." And he shall be blessed, and he'll be as numerous, and his descendants will be as blessed as the sands of the desert. But he will be like a wild donkey. Nobody can restrain him. There are single moms here that you need to realize you don't need to run off and get a man. I know you want that, but don't get ahead of God. If God wants you to have it, he will bring him to you in the fullness of time. But you have to heal. You have to take care of yourself. You have to allow your body, your mind, your spirit to heal. And God says, I will take care of the rest. We had a lady in our church growing up. Her name was Gladys Pearson. And she was, uh, she was never married. And Gladys would always walk in. And she walked in with a walker like this, you know. And I was a bad kid in church. And she used to walk in. And I would say, Sister Pearson? She'd say, yeah. i said, say, you need a man. And she was all, you know, her fingers were, she was a missionary. Her fingers were like this, and her knees were swollen. And she'd keep on walking. And I'd say, Sister Pearson, you need a man. She'd say, I don't need a man. I got a man. And I'd say, ooh, Sister Pearson got a man. And she'd say, that's right, I got a man. He opens doors that no man can open. (laughs) Oh, you got that same man. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And she just, whoo, whoo. don't get ahead of God. I know the world says different, but don't get ahead of God. And God says, Abraham, I'm going to bring something significant out of Ishmael. And do you know the whole Arab-Israeli crisis, because the Bible says uh, Hagar and Ishmael, they go up into the northern region, and he becomes the father of the Arab nation. And that's why they hate Israel so much, because they say we're the firstborn, and we should have rights to Jerusalem. And now there's a fight. But before we point our finger at Abraham... We all have Ishmaels in our lives, don't we? The times we blew it and tried to make things happen on our own. We got involved in things we shouldn't have gotten involved with, and now it's a mess, and we hung out with people we shouldn't have hung out with. Isn't it amazing that we cut out and we tell people to go that should have stayed, and we keep people and we have them stay, and they should have gone? Satan, the accuser of the church, will constantly whisper to you, God's not going to bless you. You knew better. In fact, there are some of you right now that the devil will whisper to you all week long, just sit on the sidelines of life. You've lost or forfeited your effectiveness. You don't deserve happiness. You don't deserve joy. You don't deserve those things. Those are lies from the depths of hell. For the Bible says that God has a crown of beauty instead of ashes. He has the oil of joy instead of mourning. Tonight he has a garment of praise instead of depression or despair. god has mercy and forgiveness for every single sin and every single mistake and every single hurt and every single pain my god is still the healer he's still the one that'll move him he knows where all your broken pieces are you see there are some of you that you have given pieces away in sexual relationships Maybe you've gone through a painful divorce or you've gone through a time when somebody took things from you sexually and abused you sexually. And you say, I don't feel like a whole person, Pastor. And the only time I feel like a whole person is when I'm in a relationship with somebody. Why is that? Because they bring their pieces along and finally you're whole. But if there's no marriage covenant, they get up and walk away and they take your pieces with them. And the, whole, and the payoff to sexual purity is not that you'll get sexually, you won't get sexually transmitted disease because this generation says, well, I'll use a condom, or I'll do this, or so I'll never get it, or I'll just take the morning after pill. The payoff to sexual purity is not that you won't get pregnant or you'll get a, some transmitted disease. It's that when you stay, stay sexually pure, it's wholeness with yourself, a whole gift to give to God, and a whole gift to give to somebody else. You're a whole person. But the mercy and the grace of God is amazing that if you have done those things and if you have given yourself over, only God knows where those pieces are and only God who created you, honey, he knows exactly where they are and only God can put them together. He formed you in your mother's womb once. When you come back to him and you repent, he'll form you all over again and he'll give you secondary virginity and he cleans your mind and he makes you whole. If you believe that, I want you to clap your hands and praise him that you serve a creative, miracle-working God. Oh, don't patty-cake him. Come on, praise him. Yes. If you'll stay in faith and repent where you need to repent, take responsibility where you need to take responsibility, or turn everything over to him, God will not only take you through it, but he will take the mess you made, clean you up, and bring you out better. Let me tell you the rest of the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. Abraham had two sons, as you already know, Ishmael and Isaac. Now, Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was named Joseph. And Abraham was Joseph's great-great-grandfather. And as a teenager, Joseph's brothers were jealous of him because their father prized Joseph over the rest because Joseph's mother, well, the father loved her the most. Her name was Rachel, and oh, Jacob loved Rachel. And so he prized Joseph and Benjamin over the other ten. And they got bitter and angry, and the Bible says that they rose up, and the eldest, Reuben, said, let's throw him in a pit. Genesis 37 and 28 tells us, So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the pit and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. 30, 20 shekels of silver today is about $20. They literally threw their brother in a pit for $20. They were going to kill him. But the Ishmaelites were the descendants of Ishmael their half-brother, part of the great nation that God had promised. And when they looked up and they saw the Ishmaelites among the Midianites, they said, let's sell him to our half-brother. When Joseph's brothers saw this, they gave $20 to their half-brother or the descendants of their half-brothers. And if it had not been for the Ishmaelites, Joseph would have died there in the pit. He would have never made it to the palace of Egypt. He never would have risen to second in command in Egypt. Placed in charge of the food supply and all the commerce of Egypt. Years later, when there was a famine in Israel, his brothers from Jacob's side would come after him. And they would not only save them, but he would save the entire nation of Israel. See, his brothers came, and now God had raised Joseph up in, in Egypt, and his brothers came, didn't recognize him. Joseph told him in Genesis fifteen twenty, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Glue your eyes right here. There are some of you right now, you're dealing with situations that are beyond your control. If I had a dollar for every time A couple my age or older came to me and said, Pastor, you got a minute? I said, yeah. They'll look at me and they'll say, we want to know if we're bad people. And I said, I don't know if you're bad people or not. I don't know you. And they'd say, well, the reason we're asking is because we thought at this time in our life that we would be off having vacations and just her and I, empty nest, you know. Kids are out of college, supposed to be our golden years. But now because of the choices of our kids, we're raising grandkids. Real quiet now. And if I had a dollar for every time they'd look at me with tears in their eyes, saying, We love our grandkids. They're three, four years old, five years old. We, we care for them. But why do we, we don't want to go through this? I had one lady tell me, Am I a bad person? I don't think I could make another 18 years. And she'd say, I'm tired. And I'd look at her and say, Are you tired or are you weary? You see, there's a difference. Tired is the result of hard work. Weariness is a spiritual attack. Weariness, no matter how much you sleep, you never get enough. You're dealing with one thing after the next, after the next, after the next. And it's beyond your control. And, And Joseph, it was beyond his control. But you never read of Joseph getting angry at God. No, Joseph, he leaned on the Lord. And this is how amazing God's plan is. Years later, Joseph said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. There are some of you that need to say, these things are beyond our control, God, but I'm going to trust you and I'm going to praise you and I'm going to ask you to give me wisdom and supernatural strength that I might pour into my grandkids and I might raise them up. And in the process, my kids would come to know the saving power of Jesus Christ. My daughter, my son would begin to realize that greater is he that is in me. than and he that is in the world. And the Lord says, you bring me your ashes, Mom. You bring me your ashes, Dad, and I'll breathe on them with my righteousness and my love, and I'll turn ashes to gold. Ashes to gold. There is someone here today you need to turn to God and break the cycle of dysfunction that is affecting your future generations just like Joseph did. And if you'll just listen very carefully, I'm about to touch on something in the closing moments that we have together. I'm almost done. There is somebody here that you need to turn to God and break the cycle that is affecting your future generations, your grandchildren, or possibly your children. Somewhere, somebody was teaching that as a Christian, you can come under a generational curse. That is poor teaching. There are no such things as generational curses for a child of God that's been set free and delivered. The very moment you give your life to Jesus Christ, every curse of hell and sin is broken (laughs) by the power of the blood of Jesus. If you believe that, come on, clap your hands and praise him. For he who the Son is set free is free indeed. Oh, come on, praise him for that. You're set free. But there are generational strongholds. Generational strongholds are ways of thinking. They masquerade as personality traits. You ever heard somebody tell you, well, you're just like your dad. You're just like your mom. Some of you go into the kitchen or you go into the bathroom, you look in the mirror, and you say, I don't want to be like them. My dad was selfish. My mother was mean. I don't want to be like them. And they say, oh, that's just, you're just like them. No, strongholds can be learned traits. As you're growing up under somebody, you take on learned things from them that are not of God. And you have to break that stronghold or that personality trait. And and they masquerade. There are some families, they say, well, you know, we just don't show love. That's just the way we are. In our our men, our masculine men, we don't hug on them. We don't hug on our family. We don't hug on our wives. Because that's how all our men have done it. No, that's your sin. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You say, well, how do we break that? By the renewing of my mind and the meditation of my heart, Pastor Steve already said it, you put the word of God into you. You say, well, Pastor Randy, I wasn't raised by a godly father. Are you saved now? Yes, I'm saved now. Then you become a new creation and you learn the word of God so you take on the personality traits of your heavenly father, Jesus Christ. This place is no longer your home. Carrie Underwood has the song Temporary Home. This is my temporary home. And so whenever those strongholds come, strongholds are ways of thinking. Now listen, Satan cannot read your mind, but he'll bombard you with negative thoughts. And the moment you bite on that negative thought, you'll give one area of your thought process to the devil. That's a stronghold. And your family will say, well, that's just the way we've always, we're always workaholics. We don't have time to go to church. Or that's a stronghold. Or they'll say things like, well, you know, uh, 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 our our anger, you know, we're just easily angry. We got a short fuse. Don't mess with me. That's a stronghold. Am I teaching you truth yet? And you could either choose to live in those strongholds and allow, or allow God to come in and apply the word of God to your mind and have him change you from the inside out. And God... Not only can correct a complicated situation, but he can show you somehow. He can use you years later to bless your descendants. And there are some of you, when you look at your children, you're saying, I don't want them to, to be like this. Then break it by the power of God. And fill your mind with God's word. And surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And come to grow university. And learn and apply God's word to your life on a daily basis. And suddenly you begin to change. And he brings beauty out of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. A garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I want the musicians to come quickly. And he said, well, pastor, can it really happen? Do you know the Bible is filled with people whose lives were full of strongholds? One of my favorite stories is about a cursed (laughs) great-great-granddaughter. See, Lot was Abraham's nephew. And Lot decided that he was going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, his uncle Abraham said, hey, son, I'm going to give you cattle and I'm going to give you Herds and donkeys, I'm going to bless you. And out of that blessing, he became a wealthy man. But now there's arguing and there's strife that's happening amongst the families. And so Abraham says, somebody's got to be a a peacemaker. So he tells Lot, hey, Lot, you choose which way you want to go. If you go that way, I'll go this way. If you go this way, I'll go that way. And Lot sees that there are five cities that are flourishing and he sets his tents towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, sis, we never read that Lot is married prior to going to Sodom and Gomorrah. But Sodom and Gomorrah was so evil, so where we get the word sodomy or sodomites, you starting to get the picture? And when the angels of God came to get Lot out, they find him at the city gate. You know why? Because at the city gate, that's where all the rich guys hung out and they did business. So literally, Lot being a a wealthy man, he's conducting business and trade on Wall Street, on Sodom and Gomorrah. He's entrenched now. And the Bible says he walks, the angels say we're going to destroy the city. So now he's got to walk through the city with these angels. And that's when these Sodomites, these men who are bent in their sexual prowess... Got to be very careful there's kids here they see these angels they're beautiful and they say we want to have relations with them and they're following lot to his house lot gets to his house and now we find out lot's got a family so lot married a woman from sodom that's another bad mistake oh don't worry pastor i'm going to evangelize him I, I'm going to change him. I, I know I shouldn't marry him. I know I shouldn't date him. I, I know he ain't right. But I'm going to change him. No. You can't even change yourself. And they knock on the door and they say, send the angels out or send the men out so we might have relations with him. And Lot is so warped in his thinking he says, let me send my virgin daughters out to you. Can you imagine those girls, Dad, you really going to send us out there? Now as the story goes, the angels destroy the city and they pull Lot and his family out but his wife looks back on Sodom fondly because she's from that area and she turns into a pillar of salt. Let me explain to you why. The book of Samuel tells us that God does not look at the outward appearance of man, but he looks at the heart of man. And God had been looking at the heart of a woman that was solid stone for a long time. So when she turned back, because the angel said, don't turn. Listen, when God brings you out... When you bring your ashes to God, when God brings you out, don't go back. Don't turn around. Don't go back to the ashes. Don't go back to the fire. Let him change it to gold. But she looks back, and the Lord says, okay, I'm going to show all the world for all of eternity what I've been looking at in your heart. And she turns to a pillar of salt. Now, the daughters, they think everybody is destroyed. And they're hurt one commentator I read said that he believed they were gonna embarrass their father because he put them in a bad situation I don't know but we do know that they get him drunk because they think there's no other people around and they have relations with their dad and the first daughter gets pregnant the second daughter gets pregnant the first daughter has a child and names him Moab which means out of self oh follow me now the second daughter has a son and names him Amnon. Now we have the birthing of the Moabites and the Ammonites. This is why you got to go to Grow University. The Moabites and the Ammonites became the two biggest enemies of Israel. They were so evil that several Old Testament prophets, along with God, literally banned them from coming to the temple. There was a Moabite king that was so evil, he sacrificed his own child on the wall, and the enemies that saw him in the, in the battle, they said, "Get let's, let's turn around, because there's a curse that's going to come on us because of that guy, and they left. Years later, the Moabites are not even allowed. So we find out... <laughs> That in the lineage of God is a lady by the name of Ruth the Moabitess. How does a young lady whose family history is filled with incest, curses, alcohol, depression, how does she get put into the lineage of the Messiah? Somebody whisper to yourself, ashes to gold, ashes to gold, ashes to gold. There's a famine in Israel, Elimelech and his wife Naomi, they leave Bethlehem of Judea in search of their own answers and they end up in Moab, out of self. Bethlehem of Judea means house of bread and joyful praise. They leave the house of bread and joyful praise and they go searching for answers on their own. Wrong answer. They end up in Moab, and they go with their two sons, Malon and Chilion, who marry two Moabite women, Orpha and Ruth. Ashes to gold, ashes to gold. The men die in the famine, (laughs) and Naomi realizes, I should have never left. I'm going back. And She turns to her daughter-in-law and she said, I have no more sons. You have a choice. You can stay here or you can go with me. In other words, she's saying, you have a choice. You can break the cycle of dysfunction now or you can, you can go with me. And the Bible says that Orpha, she stays in Moab and she walks right out of the pages of Scripture and you never hear of her again. But Ruth decides to break the cycle of dysfunction and she says, wherever you go, I will go. Where you lay, I will lay. Your God will be my God. Your king shall be my king. And she sets off with her to Bethlehem of Judea. In other words, she's saying, I'm breaking every stronghold and running after God. When she gets there, she goes out to a field. Boaz, the owner of the field, notices her. And the Bible says, he says, Who is that hot babe? And he tells his workers, Leave some grain for her to pick up. Mm, mm, mm. And they get married in God's time. Who was Boaz's mother? Rahab, who was a harlot in Jericho. She ran, she was the madam, and she broke the cycle of dysfunction. And She allowed God to use her, and Joshua escapes. I don't know what you're going through tonight, but I do know he has beauty out of ashes. He has the oil of rejoicing instead of mourning. And he has a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And if you would simply bring him the ashes of your life, maybe you're already saved, you're born again, you're on your way to heaven, but you're dealing with some strongholds in your life and you're saying, Pastor, I want God to set me free. I want to renew my mind. Maybe you're here and you've got to rededicate your life to God. Maybe you're here and you were invited by someone and you've never asked Christ in your life as your Lord and Savior. And tonight you heard something and you're saying, you mean really? I could start over? I could have a new beginning? God can do something mighty in my life? Yes. Yes. I want you to stand all over the room right now. Because what's about to happen in this place is God's about to set people free all over this room. Maybe you're watching me by live stream and you're sitting in a hotel room or you're sitting in your living room and there are some parts of your life you have strongholds and there are ashes that have burned in your life and God says, if you'll bring them to me, if you'll take responsibility, I can begin to turn every ash to gold, healing in the name of Jesus. Before we go any further, I want you to lift your hands and I want you to lift your voice and I just want you to tell the Holy Spirit right now, here I am Lord, I'm about to lift praise, come on church, let's just praise Him, let's praise Him.